0: Hey, Three Crosses family, welcome back to the podcast. Pastor AJ here. I oversee life groups and discipleship, and we are in the middle of our Explore God series. We've been having some great conversation on Wednesday nights here on campus. And so if you're interested in joining the conversation, visit threecrosses.church slash community nights or threecrosses.church slash God. Submit your questions, see what's on the schedule, and make sure to come out on Wednesday night for dinner and fellowship. Today, our conversation is all about why should I trust the Bible? You're in store for a great conversation, and so with that, let's go deeper.
1: How you doing? So glad that you're here tonight. Hey, uh, by the way, I'm Ryan. Uh, this is our panelist tonight. We got uh, Pastor AJ Venegas, who preached our sermon on Sunday. Hey, everybody. Isn't
2: it good on Sunday? Yeah.
1: How many of you were here on Sunday? Don't worry, won't shame you if you weren't. Okay, so a lot of you heard it. You might have questions. Like I said, like it, whatever's stirring in you, I want to hear from you. And we also have Pastor Danny Strange. Uh, Danny and I, all three of us, we've all we've all been to seminary. Yes. Yes. And uh, yes. you know, this week uh, we've been reading all these this, these books, AJ was talking a lot about this book by Gordon Lightfoot. Now I can't remember the title of it. How we got the Bible, how we got the Bible. And I was, you know, it's been, you might look at me and think you were just at seminary. Probably the other week, you just graduated probably, but
2: are you 30 years old? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
1: but I grad, I, last time I was in the class about, um, like the Bible, the textual criticism, some of the things that you brought up, AJ. I mean, gosh, it was, you know, uh, it was like fifteen or sixteen years ago, so I was brushing up on this, and I and I was listening uh, when I was sitting in here on Sunday, listening to you, AJ. I was just struck uh, with with just what we have—that we have this this scriptures, we have the Bible, we have this book that's been passed down faithfully and accurately over hundreds. Um, a couple thousand, a few thousand years. If you go back all the way to Genesis, the uh, Pentateuch, and I was just struck with that. But um, if you weren't, if for, for those of us who weren't here, or those who maybe, you know, we know how it can be. The week's been going by. Kids have been getting into trouble at school. We've forgotten everything you said. Can you give us a quick overview of what you, uh, what the Lord brought brought to you on Sunday?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, so, I. Uh, I felt a burden, um, especially in this explore God series. So kind of inside information for you guys that come to Wednesday night. Good for you. Um, I felt like this sermon was really important because a lot of the arguments in the future are probably going to come from the Bible. And a lot of times when you have conversations like we're having today, it's like, you can't bring me to the Bible. If you haven't argued for the credibility of the Bible. And so a lot of these things that we're even going to talk about, there was a burden. Okay, like, uh, let's start there and then let's open up the text. So, like, that was the whole reason of if you weren't here, you just held it in your lap. You just felt the humanity of the book and, like, let's treat this like a human document. And so we explored a lot of the humanity of it, the human origin story of how we got this Bible. Uh, We did a little CSI investigation on the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we asked three different questions. Uh, Who is involved? How did it all shake down? And then what is the physical evidence that can corroborate some of the claims that are being made about these books? And uh, what we found is that we don't even have to open this book to say that this thing is trustworthy. And you might be saying, well, you kind of opened it. And that was what I was trying to get. I didn't want to try to be circular arguing. And so I was saying, okay, let's treat this like any other document, and one of the analogies that came to mind was, uh, like say you had the Declaration of Independence in front of you. Uh, it would be silly for us not to open it and look at the signatures and say, okay, this is why, um, or this is who was involved. In the same way, we're taking this ancient document, we're opening it, and we're looking for the signatures, and I don't think that's circular reasoning. Um, so. Yeah, my hope is that from here on out, uh, we have the basis to be able to open the Bible and wrestle with some of its claims. Like if this book is in fact trustworthy and we know the words have been handed down to us, what are the implications on its claims? And so that's where I was going for my aim. I'm certainly not the expert in a lot of this, so I brought my friends with me. Uh, that I was studying. I love I was,
2: how you say you're not the expert, but you have a pile <laughs> of books. Yeah. You look They're like They're my friends. Yeah, They're my friends.
0: Like the um, yeah, two great books. One, Scribes and Scriptures. He read the other one, so we're going to have to cross-pollinate here. Yeah. And then one of the ones I would recommend for anybody, uh, Why Should I Trust the Bible?, which is what the sermon was based on. And it's a really great tool if you're in a conversation with people. Um, yeah, and we'll post it on the uh, link in the description for the podcast. That's great.
2: And one thing, too, just about Explore God, the series, is, you know, this is a series that we're partnering with a bunch of churches around the Bay. Everybody's going through it. Ours is longer than everybody else's (laughs) series. Uh, And that's because as AJ wrestled through, I, I sent over to AJ and said, hey, would you look at this series? I think this could be a good idea. What do you think at a curriculum and community nights level? And he said, I think it's good, but I think there are some real questions that skeptics ask that we're not addressing in this series. And I feel like if we just hit these, whatever it was, eight topics, we're gonna leave some, uh, you didn't say some money on the table, but we're <laughs> gonna leave some uh, some forbidden fruit on the tree or something. Yeah. Uh, and so I've really appreciated, AJ, the way that you have thought really critically about the argument, even like what you said right now, that if we're about to start making claims about, well, this is who Jesus said that he was in the next few weeks, there's going to be skeptics out there thinking, well, I don't, I don't believe anything that says in here. So if I don't care what Jesus said he was, I don't trust the Bible. So right. anyway, I appreciate the way that you put so much thought into how to craft these questions. I think it's a really good order. We just keep joking whenever we're talking about the preaching part of the series. It's almost like someone crafted this series <laughs> for us on purpose. A
1: scribe, perhaps. Yeah. Yes.
2: Uh, <laughs> Your signature's at the bottom.
1: I feel like it provoked, for me, when I heard this, it provoked all these, these thoughts, and I don't know if it was questions, but it made me just kind of marvel at what God has done. So I kind of wanted to turn it, hey, you don't have to say a word, but I also just want to, we do want to hear from you because it helps us craft some of our questions and some of what we want to talk about tonight. But if anyone would be so brave, could you share like Anything that resonated with you or a question that kind of popped to the surface? Like, man, like, or maybe maybe you can just even share. It doesn't have to be a question. It could be just sharing an encouragement. Like, man, I opened up my Bible this week, and it was different than the week before. What I learned on Sunday kind of changed me and uh, shaped me in a different way. So, you know, what resonated with you from AJ's message? What intrigued you, impacted you, or stirred up questions? Anyone got anything? Um, Pastor AJ, I have yes. to um, check. Your message online because uh, no I missed last time. It's
0: very but good. But
2: I went to church and the book that was uh, read was Book of Sirah. Mm. And oh, my yeah. question is how did we get the 66 and not include the books that are being read in other churches? That's a yeah. fantastic. Do you want to put that question up? I think we even have <laughs>
0: that. We may have somebody had else asked that. That. That, yeah. was, that question was not a plan. Did you
2: put it up there or no?
1: The
2: uh, Apocrypha question?
1: No, I didn't include them. Oh, here's this
2: one. Yeah. How do we know we have the correct books that were considered, considered scripture? How do we know the original authors were doing accurate work? Is that kind of similar? Sure. Because is, that's Apocrypha, that right? That is.
0: Yeah, I think it's Old Testament. Is that right? Yeah, Old Testament Apocrypha. Yeah. So let's get into the Apocrypha. Have you guys <laughs> heard of the Apocrypha? Any of you guys Catholic
2: background? About. All right.
0: Okay. So you, you get, Anybody
2: read the Apocrypha or books from the Apocrypha? Tobit, Judah? Maccabees? 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 Estras.
1: So maybe like, let's just Tell give them them a little orientation on yeah, what, what it is. What's the Apocrypha? There's these inter... There's an Old Testament Apocrypha. There's New Testament Apocrypha. These are... Uh, apocrypha means... Oh, man. I just heard it today. Hidden. Hidden, yeah. hidden. And it's just these books that you'll find them if you're in a Catholic background. You'll find these in, in, script, in, in Bibles elsewhere. But in a Catholic Bible, you'll have this intertestamental period, uh, these works. So they're works that are in, in the timeline, the historical timeline, take place between the Old Test, the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. Um, not every faith tradition, uh, Christian tradition, like holds them as canonical, as authoritative, as scripture. They don't rise to that level. A lot of them are really helpful in understanding things. Like the Book of the Maccabees talks about this Maccab this revolt that brought. Uh, Israel to the place it was at the beginning of the New Testament it helps you kind of understand the kind of historical landscape where they're at. Um, so just so you, th- those are those books. There's, I don't even know how many books of the Apocrypha there are off the top of my head.
2: Hanukkah's in the Apocrypha, right? Yes, that's Is that in, in the Maccabees. Maccabees? That's a Maccabees. The idea like the rise of the Pharisees, some of that comes out of the the Apocrypha. And these are books that the, that were around. They weren't, they're not like false. They weren't like invented after the Bible were invented. They were like Ryan said. They were written between 400 BC and and zero or whatever you call it. Uh, And yet, I believe I might be wrong. AJ might be the resident expert on the apocrypha. I don't believe even the Catholic Church considered the apocrypha canon until recently, right?
0: I think the Council of Trent turned that. Uh, I think they really got into the apocrypha debate, and they said. When was that? Do you know the year? Fifteen twelve. I want to say. When you know, know years, you're the expert. When you know 16? years, you're the expert. 15, so 1512,
2: so like, so the, 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 this Bible, like the Bible, the 66 six books, was that Nicaea?
0: No. What is that? The 66? Yeah. So it's, let's get into this. All right, <laughs> let's get into this. Okay, here we go. So it's a really important question because it, it illuminates on the Old Testament, right? So how did we get the Old Testament? Um, I owe a lot to a uh, YouTuber named Tim Mackey. He does the Bible Project. <laughs> Do you think Tim
2: Mackey would appreciate the uh, title YouTuber Tim
0: Mackey? <laughs> <Yeah, laughs>
1: does anyone ever <laughs> listen to Bible Project? Bible you know? Project is a it's great incredible website. stuff. That's Tim Ackie. Okay, so Bi- I, yeah,
0: yeah, I put a conversation and a lecture on the notes. So if you have your notes, you can still look it up. But and he teaches um, it at the school you went to, right? He teaches at Western. Yeah, so I took one of his classes. Um, and he suggests Old Testament scholar that um, the Canon was probably developed at the second temple period. So this is the time when Nehemiah and um, Ezra are coming back and rebuilding the temple. So we're talking about like 500 BC. And that's why Ezra becomes such an important figure as a scribe. And so we're talking about that range. And then you bring up this conversation about the Apocrypha and the Apocrypha. Tell what canon means. So canon is probably just, I mean, it's another term for measure. So, it's essentially, hey, this is our measure of what we have and what, what is in and what's out, essentially. And, uh, you know, according to popular opinion, it's like, oh, a bunch of people decided it. It's like, well, no. Um, what essentially happened was at about the time of Ezra, it was pretty much cemented that we have these books. And the way you can tell is a couple of ways. Number one, uh, we have attestation outside of the Bible from Josephus around the first century that attributes pretty much to the entire Old Testament. Uh, we have Origen who lives in the first, second century, and what he does is he uh, claims 22 books of the Old Testament. You'd be like, okay, there's 39. But uh, what they're talking about is the Tanakh, and so that narrows it down to 24. It's the same books, just in a different Jewish order. um,
2: You want to ask what Tanakh is, don't you? Yeah, tell
0: us what Tanakh is. Yeah, so the Tanakh is, and it's really important, the Tanakh is the Jewish reception of what we call the Old Testament. And so the T stands for Torah. And so that's the first five books of the Bible. And they are the exact same books of the Bible that we have. Genesis, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Okay, so the N in that references the Nevaim, which is the Hebrew word for prophets. And the interesting thing about the prophets is that you would expect, you know, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And that doesn't come till later. What you have, the first book of the prophets is actually Joshua and then Judges. And then they skip Ruth. They go to Kings as one book. So there's not two books. It's one book. Uh, Samuel as one book. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, which are like the really long ones in the prophets that you get really bored over really quickly and like have insane visions. And then the 12, which are the minor prophets. Um, and that concludes the Nevaim. Neva'im. And it's really interesting because they include the first couple in there and then um, they skip over things like Ruth, but they put Ruth in what are called the Ketuvim, which is that last K. So you got T, N, and K, and you have the writings. And this is like the first one, in most orders, is the book of Psalms. Um, later it follows, I think, Proverbs, Job, uh, Esther, Lamentations, Song of Songs. Um, you can help me out when I'm, if I'm missing anything. A lot of those miscellaneous writings, and then it ends with Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the last book of the Hebrew Tanakh is 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Wow. Yeah. Very interesting. So if you've read 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles back to back, like we have it, you're like, what am I doing? I'm like reading the same exact thing. Yeah. But if you read it in the Jewish order, what you find is that 1 Kings is documenting history and then 1 and 2 Chronicles, the guy named the Chronicler is coming in and essentially rehashing the history now that you know the entire history of the Old Testament. It's actually quite a beautiful book. And the reason, the reason I point that out is because uh, of one particular verse that blew my mind when I learned it. Uh, Luke 24, uh, verse 44. Jesus on the road to Emmaus talking to his disciples, and he says that everything needed to be fulfilled that was written about me in the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And so even Jesus had his own view of what the Tanakh was, and it perfectly aligns with what a Hebrew of that day would have thought of. Hmm. And so here's another interesting fact. Um, I think that in Timothy Paul Jones' book, he talks about the Apocrypha, the origins of it. And uh, you can trace it uh, uh, pretty closely to the um, development of the Septuagint. And so the Septuagint is the Greek oh, translation. There's so much stuff. Sorry. There's, so much stuff. <laughs> I'm there's going all on. these names. <laughs> so the Septuagint is another word for 70. And it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so uh, around the year 200 BC, uh, that's when like things were spreading across the Mediterranean and the, the language of the time was Greek. And so a lot of these Hebrews were, were scattered and so they had incentive to translate the Bible into a language that people could understand. And so they took it and they translated it into Greek. Now, the interesting thing is that um, there was a essentially a war going on from like the north and the south. And if you're interested, you can read more about it in Daniel. But um, they were brought to the south under this uh, guy named Ptolemy. He's like the king of Egypt at the time. Um, And what this guy wanted to do, he was like a big nerd. And so he wanted to craft this library. And so he said, hey, bunch of Jews that are like homeless now. And like we have captivity over you. uh, Can you translate the Bible, the Old Testament for me? In Hebrew or in Greek, sorry. And so that's what they did, but the thing is they didn't have the same incentive that we might have, like this is we want to preserve like what key doctrines are in it, right, that as people of faith we want to have key doctrines. Well at the time they were more historians at the time, it was more of like a Renaissance. And so what happened is they said, hmm, There are some really cool books that describe the history that can, like, inform people. So, hey, why not? Let's include that. We don't really care about, like, doctrinal stuff. Let's just include as many books that can retell the history of Israel as possible. And what you end up with is the Septuagint. One last note. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, was the one in circulation in the first century. And so the Septuagint is the one that probably Jesus read, that probably all the disciples read, and what we find is that a lot of the disciples are quoting directly from the Septuagint in a large amount. Now isn't it fascinating that if they had the Septuagint in their hands, it was full of the Apocrypha, that Jesus never mentions once any books of the Apocrypha, that the disciples hardly ever mention they refer to it as like a book in Jude, I think. It talks mm-hmm. about like Enoch or- Peter influence. does too, I think. Peter, yeah. Um, and it's just, the comparison that's made is like, hey, if, if this place were to go under, you would probably find a lot of Bibles, but you'd probably find a lot of like textbooks like this. It's just what our library composes of, right? Uh, in the same way, like they had their core doctrine and they were reading books just like this, that were really helpful for them to understand what was going on at the time. And so they had to discern, okay, which books are really helpful, which books make it in the canon, and then people like Josephus' origin confirm, hey, these are the books that were probably finalized around the 500 B.C. era. That's what I got. All right,
2: Okay, that's
1: gonna be, that's a lot. He just said words like Tanakh and Septuagint. What, like, do you, was that clear? So let me just give an overview. We look at this, um, which all that stuff is like incredible. Like, this, for me, like, it takes me back to school in a really positive, like, in a really good way. And I like remember, like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe all this stuff. Um, what we see is that, like, we have this Old Testament canon, these books of the Old Testament, that the New Testament, its authors, Jesus, the apostles, they all attest to those books. I think they only don't quote like Esther. There's only like two or three books they don't directly quote right. from. Every Jewish person considered at the time, considered those books scripture. That's what they were. It was not an open discussion. It wasn't something that people were debating. It was a clo- It was a closed discussion. Canon. It was done and over with. And so we can have confidence at the very least that that was what they believed and that they brought forward. And over and over again, it's attested to. And so when we see things like Cyril, those things are helpful and they can give us a flavor. They're not, I don't want anyone to hear, like, don't read those. They're evil. They're, they're not, they're not uh, you know, they're not helpful. They can be helpful. They can be informative. But we would not say that they rise to the level of Scripture. We wouldn't say that they're inerrant in the same way that we would talk about the scriptures that we have as being inerrant. They're not inspired by God. They're not the words of God. And so that's kind of one of those important distinctions um, that we have in kind of, in, in kind of Protestant Christianity, uh, that we don't hold those things as authoritative. Are they are they helpful? Yes. Are they, can they be beneficial to kind of informing kind of the view you have and the historical like placement in Jewish thought at the time In that time, like absolutely. Um, but they're just not rising to that same standard and level as scripture. Any questions out of that? I mean, that was like, I know some people were like taking <laughs> notes. Some people were just, you know, looking wide eyed I so, love it. Cause know. there's
2: some people who are like, I want to know this stuff. It's amazing. Yes. And other people who are like, I'm just glad I'm at a church that somebody knows this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like <laughs> somebody's got to know it. AJ, you know it. Yeah. Can I give you two random thoughts? Yeah. Or good thoughts on the subtugent or on the apocrypha too. Catholic versus Protestant Bible. You notice they're different because there's an apocrypha in them. There's actually two two major places they're different. One, uh, the Old Testament in the Catholic Bible is slightly different than the Old Testament in this Bible, the Protestant Bible, um, in mostly really minor ways. And the primary reason is because our Bible in our church is a translation, an English translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. Yes, The Catholic Bible is an English translation of the Greek Old Testament, of the Septuagint. And the reason uh, is that the Catholic the Catholic Church would say, hey, well, that's the Bible that Jesus had. That's the Bible the apostles used. It's good enough for us. If it's good enough for Jesus and the apostles, it's good enough for us. And so some of those Old Testament apocryphal books make it into the Catholic Bible because they use that Greek translation, that Septuagint. Um, the Protestant Church would say, well, we know the Bible was originally written in Hebrew. And so let's use what's called, you talked about the BHS w 4 or whatever. Let's use the Masoretic text. Let's use the Hebrew Bible to create our English Bible. So we create um, our Bible from the Hebrew, where the Catholic Bible is from the Greek. The other reason that there's some different books of the Apocrypha, like Ryan said, uh, all these books, Maccabees and all that, they all existed before the Bible was closed. But like AJ mentioned, those books weren't added to the Catholic like Bible until the 16th century, which is 12, 1,300 years right after the New Testament canon was closed. Yeah. Um, and, and part of that reason was they were... There was a group of people called us, the Protestants, who were starting to like read the New Testament saying, salvation is actually by grace through faith, like not by works. Say, hey, you know, Martin Luther and Calvin and those guys were reading the Romans and other parts of the New Testament saying, I think there's some things that are wrong that the Catholic Church is teaching. I don't think this is indulgences or purgatory or these different things. That's not in here. That's not right. And the Catholics uh, started to build some, some written down doctrine to oppose what these new Protestant teachers were teaching that they were seeing in the scriptures. And part of what they did was they said, hey, some of these books that we've been reading but haven't been part of the Bible, they reinforce these things that we're teaching. And so we're going to make them part of the Bible now. And so um, part of the reason that some of those even the later books are in the Apocrypha and the Catholic Bible is to say that we're wrong, right? <laughs> it's to say, hey, l- hold on, guys. Like, there is some effort and some works required in salvation. Hey, come on guys, Martin Luther is wrong. Let's read Seurat or let's read Maccabees or let's read Tobit. Um, And so some of it was, I wouldn't say like political pressure, but them trying to say, hey, let's not forget these books. Let's put them in there. So everybody remembers like the Protestants are wrong, you know? And so there was a bit of a a bit of a fight in the sixteenth century that's a different um,
0: and I mean I think it's good to call out too like this is one of the amazing things I read in this book. Uh, scribes and scriptures definitely uh, it's probably the most updated like scholarly work on this um, it's it, there's so many details in this very story that we're talking about that we're just like flying by, <laughs> so hopefully it doesn't come off like this was like a pretty picture where it's like obvious 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 like there was a lot of wrestling match. Like, where did Esther show up? Because in the Dead Sea Scrolls, like I said, even in the sermon, like, it accounts for everything except for Esther. And so there was debate back and forth of, like, what did this happen? And, you know, one of the beautiful things about God's divine hand over it is that, like, yes, people saw fit to copy these books because they they felt like this tradition was passed on to me. And so the more copies and more copies you see of one thing, the likelihood is that these people probably found this book to be something or another. Mm-hmm. And so you look at the other gospel, um, you know, even the gospels in the New Testament, which we'll get to, but a lot of the, the documents just don't have that same weight of documented evidence behind it. And that's like a key distinction is like, okay, there's a, probably a reason why these didn't get printed as much Um, The best way I can describe it is like these are the books that went viral. In in this time, yeah, like these are the books that went viral. That's like mm-hmm. the best way to explain it. Yeah, and uh, you know, with viral videos, it's like you never know who it's hopping to, but you know that it's hopping to somebody, and there's like a view counter, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Like it, it, they're going viral and they're making copies because it it was considered to be canon, and now that we have all these copies, we are like, okay, this thing went viral. Something happened. And there are copies like there are other YouTube videos that like we don't get into, but we look at the viral ones and say like, yeah, I remember who- Gangnam style, you know, like Resting. I remember, <laughs> uh, huh. I remember, you know, the, Friday the, squirrel, the squirrel that looks at you like yeah, this. That's right, like, yeah, that's right. Yeah. A
1: classic.
2: So we, so we talked—I'm not trying to steal your, uh, yeah. steal your thunder here, but just to recap. So we talked about the Old Testament, that the Old Testament was written. You talked about it in your sermon. Scribes, penning this down. We see the unity, the beauty of the Old Testament. We see that by the time of Jesus, it was pretty codified. This is what the 39 books of the Old Testament are. The law, the prophets, the writings, Psalms, all that. Um, and then we have the New Testament. And so tell us a little bit about how the New Testament canon, like the 27 books of the New Testament— were considered those 27 books. When did that happen? How did it happen? Yeah. How to decide what's in, what's not? How did so, they get the viral countdown going?
0: Let's get into the New Testament, shall we? Um, the great thing about the Old Testament is that it was a little bit more controlled. So the, the Jewish practices were very disciplined. You know, As I brought out in that quote, the Jewish Talmud, all of this, these regulations and making sure that like we're getting this right. And so there's a little bit more control factor. And then you hit the first century And then as you guys know, like Christianity spreads like wildfire across the the Mediterranean world, right? And so take that viral analogy and like multiply it times 10. And that's what we're talking about. So in the very first couple of centuries, like um, people were looking for a couple of things. Number one, was this written by somebody that had an affiliation with Jesus? Like, is there apostolic authority behind what's going on? So did this book come from somebody who walked with Jesus? Or you might be saying, what about Mark? What about Luke? Those are associates of Peter and Paul, respectively. Well, did Paul walk with Jesus? Well, he had an encounter with Jesus in uh, Acts 12, 9, Uh, somewhere around there. Yeah, 9. In between Acts 9 and 12. Um, And he claims to be an apostle as well. So it's like... They are looking for apostolic authority. And so what you find, um, we don't have the original manuscripts because they've been lost to history. But what you find is that these letters are copied and copied again and copied again and copied again as they're spreading across the region. Retweet, retweet, yeah, retweet. Yeah. Retweets, exactly. Great analogy. And so the, the church is definitely left with like this. Okay, which ones do I include? And if you think about it at the time, they're not like photocopying it. They're, they're writing down these like expensive books. Like it it costs a lot of money to produce these things. And so they're gonna take advantage of any time they can put any sort of valuable writing in there, they're gonna put it in there. And so you see some interesting books connected into these what they call codexes, which is essentially like a book, because it's like it's very valuable material. So um, the question is, how do we know we have the correct ones? Um, there's a couple early ad- attestations to this. So we look to you know the church fathers that were writing very early on in the church. So one guy's name is Irenaeus, another guy is Clement, and they're all agreeing on what looks like to be a core basis of around 22 of our New Testament books. Uh, The earliest ones that are closed being the Gospels, which is fascinating. Uh, There's a fragment called the Muratorian Fragment. It's like a very piece of document. And um, it gets really close to the 27 books of the New Testament. Um, Again, it's not as clean as we would like, but if you're dealing with viral videos and trying to figure out, okay, which ones do people, you know, attest to, you're probably going to have some debate over it. And uh, these are like the ones, the general epistles get a lot of debate. Uh, the book of revelations gets some debate. Second and third John get some debate, but that's like, I mean, when is, when have you heard of a sermon on second and third John lately? Oh, you John's know? <laughs> accepted. Um, so you kind of end up with this um, organic movement where people are identifying which ones have gone viral the most. And so to say that we as Christian elite people were met at a council, the council I'm talking about is like the Council of Nicaea, which um, the prevailing narrative is that at the Council of Nicaea led by Emperor Constantine, who just made Christianity the official religion, had a bunch of pastor-like people decide, okay, which books do we want? Which books do we not want?
2: Like, a, like you have a little vote?
0: Yeah, you have a little vote. That's just not the case. Like what they're doing is identifying what the Lord is actually doing in this. And um, yeah, the big debate is the first list of all 27 comes from Athanasius, which happens after the Council of Nicaea, which is around 3, 7, 360, 370. And so a lot of people are like, oh, well, it couldn't have been until then. But what Athanasius is doing, he's not even, like, arguing for the canon. He's just saying, like, he's realizing the reality of the situation. So a great example are um, some of the the Gnostic Gospels, some of the New Testament Apocrypha. Um, You know, one example I heard in studying all this was, like, the Gospel of Thomas. Okay? So, like, the Gospel of Thomas, first— is probably written somewhere in the second century. So we're talking about maybe a hundred years after Jesus. So, and remember that,
2: what just yeah, I remember if you ahead. said this in your sermon that, so the New Testament canon, the 27 books we have, uh, most of the books were written within 30 years to 50 right. years of when Jesus uh, resurrected up to the latest dating of books are probably what, early nineties maybe, right. like Revelation 92, 93. Right. So like all of it happened in a really tight period of time and then these other people are like, well, what about Mary Magdalene, Thomas, all that? So when AJ says, and hey, this is written in the, what did you say, second century?
0: Yeah, late, that's late like, second century. That
2: is like, you got this cluster of all the New Testament books, and then you've got these books that were written way later, um, like a hundred years later. And so that's what he's drawn out when he's saying yeah. second century.
0: And even, even Gospel of Peter. And, and you start to feel like- the Gospel okay. of Peter is
2: not the epistles of Peter, right? Correct, yes.
0: different thing, entirely different thing. And what you realize is like, okay, Perhaps somebody named this so that it could get airtime, you know? Perhaps somebody yeah. used the name Peter, used the name uh, Thomas so that it could get airtime. But these books are written way past. And even in that Muratorian fragment, it comments on the gospel of Peter. as like, hey, if Peter wrote this, we're going to accept it. But there is no shot that Peter wrote this. And so it's denied. And yeah. it's, very, it, it's as simple as that. And, and, you know, it becomes discretion just like any other book, any other collection of book. Like, we're going to go through different books, and we're going to have to determine, okay, which one is probably, you know, beneficial. So um, there's beneficial books like the Didache, Mm -hmm. like the teaching of the disciples, like very beneficial. Didn't make in canon, but we're still going to read it. Uh, The Shepherd, I think, the Shepherd Shepherd of Hermes. Hermes? Hermes. Another great book that was passed around. And in the Muratorian fragment, I think, they talk about... um, I think it's different, but um, they talk about there's benefit in reading the shepherd. And so it's like not a, a book that we should shy away from. It, it, it can add value, it's just not scripture. And so we determine which books are gonna help the faith and which books like are just way out there. You know, yeah. I think the Gospel of Peter has some interesting quotes. I think remember?
1: the uh, Gospel of Thomas, uh, young boy Jesus turned some bullies into birds. Yeah. So. And the you gospel, should read that. It turns them into birds. Yeah, There's, there's
2: one where like, he throws a rock and it turns into a bird and flies away. Yeah, and I think
1: another one? kid pushes him and it, he strikes him dead. So and I, I think, don't think young boy Jesus is striking people dead if you know those scriptures. So that's uh. one of those things too. You read some of these books and it's just, they're so out there. There's so I mean hey it's there's like a
2: Vinci Code level uh, yes this is weird stuff
1: and it does not square with the it does not square with the narrative I mean Jesus did we believe that Jesus did miracles he did some incredible things but he healed people he didn't turn them into birds he cast out demons he didn't you know de- why is it,
2: why is it that like when Jesus turns water into wine we're like yeah that fits and it, like but then he turns a person into a bird we're like <laughs> not that though
1: I think it's because he was mad at them so that's <laughs> that's, a, that's a kind of odd picture of who Jesus of of a Jesus the Jesus that we know
2: and I. Th- I mean, too, like that's, I think the point you're trying to make is the 27 books we have in our New Testament, The yes. uh, we can hit again. The criteria were, okay, apostolic authorship, wide circulation, mm-hmm. like internal consistency, like this, this is true. And part of it is uh, you talk about going viral. Sometimes we're like, oh, whatever was funniest people were sending along. That's not true. It's like these people were like scribbling down any piece of the truth they could get and passing it on to their friends and other churches because yeah. it was so valuable One of fun fact about the Bible is it's written in Greek, the New Testament. Um, It's written in a type of Greek called Koine Greek, which is opposed to like classical Greek, like uh, the Iliad and Homer, all the writings were written in. And when, when the Bible was first, kind of Greek Bibles first started getting investigated, people were thinking like, what is this different type of Greek that doesn't match Greek antiquity? And at first they're like, oh, it must be this holy Greek like King James English, like it's whole, like it's above classical Greek, whatever. Like it must be the secret spiritual language. And then they started finding Koine Greek on other fragments, on shopping lists, honeydew lists. And they realized, oh no, it's the opposite. Koine Greek, Koine means common. Koine Greek is just the language of the people, right? So you get this image that like after Jesus raises from the dead, the apostles' lives are shattered and they start to write down these things They're writing it down. These are untrained people, a lot of times fishermen and scribes that are writing these things down and passing it along. And it's spreading like wildfire because there's 500 witnesses, because these apostles saw it with their own eyes. Um, And so these books that made it into the Bible were written by people who were there, who said, like Luke said, I just have to give you an orderly account. And one of my favorite facts about uh, the historicity of like Luke and Acts is... Um, in one of the books, in the um, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist book, they kind of walk through all of Luke's gospel and say, let me tell you how we know Luke wrote Luke because there are like 97 details in Luke and Acts that you had to be there to know nobody knew this until archaeological evidence discovered it hundreds or thousands of years later he knew the name of port cities he knew the slang terms for things he knew inscriptions that were on walls that archaeologists didn't find like so if this was just made up in like 400 a.d or something no one could have made up all these details this was written by someone who was there um and so these these men and uh who wrote all these new testaments these people get these glimpses they pass them along and we see these things are circulated because people are so hungry for the truth of the gospel because the resurrection of Jesus changed
0: everything. One more I'll be really quick because uh one of the more compelling arguments I, and funny ones that you might appreciate is like if you're going to invent a gospel, you're not choosing Mark and Luke. Right. You're choosing like Peter. Yeah. You're choosing the gospel, of the, big, James. The, you're yeah. the big hitters, Choosing the big hitters, Jesus,
2: brother, James, let you're me not, tell you. you're yeah.
0: not choosing Matthew. Right. You're not choosing, you know, um, why am I blanking? You're not choosing John. You're, yeah. you're choosing like the big hitters. And I think that's like, yeah, pretty fascinating.
2: And if well, you're writing a gospel and you are Peter, you're not talking about how you're running away naked. You're not ta- like there's right. all this stuff in the gospels. You're like, if this was propaganda, you should have kept that part out. Man. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, and I was thinking a there's a human document. You brought up something earlier too that I remember when I learned this in school, you know, I had this assumption. We talked about, AJ talked about the manuscripts, the original manuscripts. Those are called the autographs. So that's like the book that John wrote with his hand or Mark wrote or Luke wrote. And you said, and you know, you told us, that we don't have; those are totally lost to history. I don't know about you, but when I first—I remember when I first learned that in one of my in my Bible class in, in college, I just it it made sense, but it also kind of like startled me a little bit, like whoa, we don't there's no original copy anywhere. Um, and I think sometimes you might think—I think you talk about it some on Sunday, but it's, you might think like maybe that unsettled someone else in here, just knowing it's like whoa, we don't actually have John's letter. We don't have any of those things. Like, can you just talk about? A little bit remind us of that process. Like, how do we still have confidence that what we have here, what we have in our trans, in our uh, kind of the the manuscripts that we have today, are accurate to what John actually said, what Luke actually wrote?
0: Right. Because
2: the telephone game would tell us that the more copies there are, the weirder and weirder it yes. gets, and before long, Jesus <laughs> is turning people into birds. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, great question. Uh, two thoughts. One this is why I wanted to go to the CSI angle. And so if you were there on Sunday, that's why I wanted to go CSI. Um, Anything in history requires some level of like minor leap, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, given the fact that we weren't there. Mm -hmm. uh, We will never be able to recreate an event in history. And so what we have to do is just like the CSI does, like we have to investigate as best as we can what is the probability of what happened. We're not dealing with absolutes here. I know that's, that, that's unfortunate, but um, we're dealing with this is highly, highly probable. And that's the best anybody can do, even in the court of law. We come to a conclusion beyond a reasonable doubt. And so um, when we're talking about history, that's just the nature Of the argument and it's like um, one of the biggest skeptics um, you can watch his debate again I threw it on the notes and his whole premise is like well I can't know how do we know like they didn't play the telephone game How, how do we know that the copies of the copies of the copies aren't accurate and you look at the evidence and you find that a lot of the the mistakes that he's talking about are very negligible in nature and You know, for the ones that are significant, we have them called out. We know where they are. We have a good idea of their story. And so it comes to a question of, like, what's it going to take? You know, what's it going to take? And even in a court of law, like some of the most obvious cases, uh, they can never be 100% certain because they weren't there. And that's just the nature of the human origin story of this. The second thing I wanted to say is actually... In an odd way, it might be a blessing that we don't have the original yeah. uh, autographs. Say
2: more about that, Because
0: AJ. if we did, oh, I see we going. might begin to speculate who found it, who maybe tweaked things. And if they did tweak things, now we're like left to the whims of whoever discovered this. In a weird way, we have all these attestations of what was in it And I think the argument of all of these collections together Mm. might actually be stronger than one single document. Mm. And like that applies to other religions as well. It's like, if we're dealing with this one single thing, how can we trust the person who wrote it? How can we trust the person it was given to? How can we trust that they didn't like tweak things? But like the fact that we have this wide attestation that is like eerily close in nature I feel like strengthens our argument. And so, um, hmm. yeah.
1: Um, well, just one last thing that like, was so compelling to me before we get to this next question um, was we, the Bible is treated like any other ancient document. When they're doing this kind of research and saying like, what can we get back to? And I remember, uh, I, it, they might have earlier fragments now, but I remember when I was taking, was in one of my classes, we talked about you know other ancient documents like Plato's Republic. We believe that we have an accurate representation of, we have the words of Plato, um, and we know we have an accurate Plato's Republic. That's what we have today. But the earliest manuscripts we have of Plato's Republic, the earliest pieces we have of it, are from a thousand years after Plato wrote the Republic. And, and Plato's
0: and, original is gone it, as It's well. gone, oh yeah, gone it's, it's
1: gone, gone. So we had, the earliest things we have, the closest we get to Plato is a thousand years after he wrote that document. And we believe, you know, no po- one
2: is saying that's not really yeah, what happened. No one's in saying, Republic. yeah, we
1: believe we got it. We got Plato's Republic. So we've got pieces. I, I've asked you this like 10 times because I can't remember, but it's like I think that there's that fragment of John, P51.
0: P52. P52.
1: It's like <laughs> as early as 90 AD, 60 year, some 60 years after Jesus dies. So, in, you know, maybe a de- couple decades after Paul wrote. That's the earliest one we have. We're so close. It's unbelievable. Yeah. And the amount, like the volume of documents is And incredible. let's remember
2: too, like if if I wrote a document today and some of you had, you know, some of you were alive 60 years ago. So what was 60 years ago? Was it 2020? Uh, uh, yeah. oh, 1960. 1969. Yeah. So like 1962, three, If if I like wrote something today and I just said, hey, like, you know, this unfortunate thing happened in a Dallas motorcade... And JFK was assassinated. But the beautiful news is that three days later, he rose from the dead. And he appeared to 500 people. And I started talking about, like, and then John F. Kennedy. Like, he he, then he ascended into heaven, and all these people saw it. There would be so many people who were alive in 1963 who would be like, that absolutely did not happen. Like, I was there, right? But with the Bible, it's interesting. Like, they're writing these writings Less time than that in a lot of these writings after Jesus rose from the dead, and there's no one saying that didn't happen. Like they're saying, listen, this happened, we all saw it, now we're circulating it, people are passing around, and we don't have evidence of people in the first, second century saying, come on, I was in Jerusalem, I would have heard about that, there's no way this, you know. Um, so it's just interesting. I feel like we couldn't pull that off today, and I don't, you know, but they pulled it off then. Maybe it happened.
1: Uh, one of the questions that came in was talking about the variants, that as these there's the copies of copies of copies of copies, and there is the reality that there are some variants. So, hey, this is the interact part. Ready? You got a Bible in the, in the book rack in front of you, I checked. Uh, open up to the end of Mark, Ooh, chapter 16, right Mark. end of Mark, and you're going to notice something there. So This is one of those variants. It's a variant. So if you look uh, after verse 8, this should be in all these Bibles, the rest of it, from nine to 20 is in italics. This is Jesus' resurrection. And it, there's probably a note in them I don't know if it's in every single one of our, our book rack Bibles, but it says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses nine through 20. So yeah, with this question it speaks to this question, let's talk about that one percent of variance that might make significant difference in our text. What are some of the questionable ones you saw in your study? What'd you like to bring out? And yeah, look at this one. I mean, this, how, this is how the gospel of Mark ends. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid.
0: Just running. Lots of running in Mark, <laughs> I point I realized today. There's a lot of, running, a lot of running away. So I got, I got a couple of things to say about this. Uh, I think three things, if I can summarize You can have three thoughts. things. <laughs> um, I forgot the first one, but that's okay. You have two left. You have two. I have two <laughs> left. Okay, so there are a lot of texts like this that there's still debate, and that's okay. Uh, Mark 16 is one of them, and here is the reason why. Um, For yes, and this was the first part, um, there's a quote that I ran across that said um, that even if we didn't have the manuscripts we might get close to replicating the entire New Testament based on what the church fathers said alone. Wow. So the church fathers were commenting all the time on the, the text that they believed was Scripture. And so you have, you're able to study what did Irenaeus say, what did uh, Justin Martyr say, what did Origen say. And that becomes important in this conversation because the, the attestation of Mark 16 is strongest Because guys like Irenaeus and Justin Martyr uh, referred to this text as being in the text. And so uh, you can look to various different witnesses, including manuscripts, including uh, church fathers, and you discover that. Uh, What's interesting is this text is not in some of the majuscules that I shared with you guys. Uh, Remember, those were the texts that were the full New Testament um, that we received, I think, the very first working full New Testament in the Greek, and they're not in Codex Vaticanus and Codex Sinaiticus. And so you're left to wonder, okay, early attestation, it's there with Irenaeus. But yet it's not there in these early codexes. Like, what is going on? And and we're readily able to admit, and that's why you have the text as you do in Mark 16. Like, there's just this debate about it and we're still trying to figure out. If that bothers you, I would encourage you just to flip to Acts 1, flip to Matthew 28, flip to the ending of Luke. That same story, minus the snake grabbing and minus all the, you know, things. But the premise is like, it feels like the author, whoever was adding this or whatever happened, was trying to gain some clarity at the end of Mark, because you read, I think Mark 8, And it ends kind of on a weird note. Can you read it real quick? Mark 16, verse 8?
1: Yeah, 16. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid.
0: And that's the ending. And it's like, what? What a cliffhanger. (laughs) And so probably somebody came in and said, okay, let's build this out based on what we know, just to be clear about what happens. And so they probably pulled from different texts like Acts and Matthew and, you know, put this in there and... Um, I I guess the point is, like, even if we didn't have this specific text, it does nothing to our theology, right? It does nothing to our theology because a lot of it doesn't make any claims about, you know, you know, who God is or or what he's doing. It's just like finishing the story. But we have that same story in other texts. So it gets verified in, in these other places. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're welcome to debate it. We're welcome to figure out. And the beautiful thing about archeology span and all this study is like, we may find some more documents yeah. that early on this appeared and you know, yeah, it's just. It's one well, of and guys. I do
2: want to point out one of the reassuring thing about these, these concepts is it's right here. Like there's nothing hidden from you. Right. If there are any significant-ish uh, variants in the scriptures, they're right there in your English Bible. You can read them, right? So if you're reading, uh, what is it, John chapter 9, is that where it is, or
0: John 8? John 7, end of John 7, beginning of John 8. Yes.
2: Uh, there's the story of the woman caught in adultery, uh, which we, the, you know, whoever's without sin cast the first stone. It's the same kind of bracketed text where it's like, okay, most scholars would say this probably happened. Which is why somebody like slipped it in there because they remembered the story, but like it probably wasn't part of John's original writing. Can I comment on that? Yeah.
0: Okay, so we do not have it in the earliest papyri, which is like our earliest evidence. So P66 does not have it. P75 does not have it. Uh, do you
2: just like have these written down? Or do yes. you like, oh. he's just pulling them out of his brain? Uh,
0: Codex Vaticanus doesn't have it. Codex Sinaiticus doesn't have it. So those are our two really important ones. So the two things that I said were really important, we don't have them in. We do have them in what is called Codex Beza. And this is where we get interesting Into this is a messy thing. But Codex Beza, you can read the, the scribe's work here and you can see that he has like a different type of scribal, practice going on like, like there's a different a different scream so what he's essentially doing is he's taking a little bit more liberty to you know make this more flowy it's, it's a little bit more free okay and we can call that up because we have all these manuscripts that are like huh this one's interesting and so john 7 this little ending here appears in codex beza and so we weigh the evidence Do we trust that this Codex Beza, which we already know is like free flowing, or do we trust the earliest manuscripts? Do we trust the earliest attestation, the earliest witnesses?
2: And what we did not do, and it wasn't we, but what we did not do was like take that and put it in the shredder and pretend like we never saw it. Right. What we did do is put it in the English Bible and say, well, hey, we want full disclosure. This showed up somewhere. Maybe it's in the Bible. I had a seminary professor who said, I don't want to burst your bubble but there's a greater chance that the snake handling thing was in the Bible than the woman caught in adultery <laughs> was in the Bible. Right. Uh, but both were, not, both were not part of the earliest manuscripts. Can we talk about the King James Bible real quick?
0: Sure.
1: We uh, to, do you want to do this, the English Bible one? Yeah. Or in that regard? Oh, well, sure. Well, I was thinking it's
0: more kind in terms of, of the variance. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's kind of related. Oh, oh, I yeah. see what you're saying.
2: <laughs> so when, are you guys familiar with the King James version of the Bible? Or the New King James Version of the Bible? So the we talked about Catholic Bible, Protestant Bible. Um, there's a ton of English translations of the New Testament, of the Bible, of the New Greek New Testament. Um, but there are two major types. There's the King James and New King James, and then there's like all the rest uh, yeah. of them. All the rest of them. Um, and the big difference is what set of manuscripts that English translation was based on. So like you may have been, maybe you grew up in a King James only church, right? Authorized version, 1611, um, King James, literally, uh, the king of England. England. England commissioned this Bible in the 17th century, 1611. And so they used all the best manuscripts they had at the time. And they've p- created the first English Bible. And so King James proponents were like, God did it. He finally got it into English. I feel like it's a racist theology, but God finally got into English. And so now it's perfect, right? Because that's God's favorite language, apparently. Uh, and so we don't need to change it anymore. The King James Bible is perfect. Uh, and so here it is, the 1611 King James authorized version. New King James uses the same 1611 manuscripts and updates the language a little bit for a more of a modern here. But King James and New King James are English translations based on the best manuscript evidence available in 1611, which archaeology has found a lot of new manuscripts then. There's a little bit of a Jurassic Park dino DNA, th- or a frog DNA thing going on with with the King James Bible, because there are places where they didn't really have a Greek text, but they had it like in their Latin version, or they had some, you know, and so they kind of like put in the Latin stuff, whatever, and translated it to English, and so, um, but it was a great translation for 1611. Since 1611, more of these papyri have been found, more of these older manuscripts have been found, more evidence has been found. And so any Bible that comes out today that's not King James or New King James is not based on the 1611 Textus Receptus is what it's called, but it's based on the conglomeration of the best manuscripts available at the time. So what churches like ours would say about our Bible is the more manuscript evidence we find, the better, because we can kind of build these stories and figure out, okay, why does this happen? Um, if you research like King James only stuff, a lot of the argument is that we're going liberal because there's some stuff in the King James Bible that like extols Jesus as God that in the, our Bible says, okay, it probably didn't say that that was added later, right? And so I can't think of an example. That'd probably be important for me to think of an example. And so what the argument is with the King James folks is they'll say, look, this passage explicitly says Jesus is God. This passage explicitly yeah, Jesus says that's this.
0: That's John 5, 7. What does it say? It, uh, it's a textual variant, and it talks about explicitly the Trinity.
2: Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Like the three that testify in heaven? One? Yes. yes. Yeah, okay. First, First John 5, it. 7. Let's read it in your Bible. It's a beautiful Bible. Is this uh, King James? No. Okay. <laughs> First Peter They might seven, have it called Peter, out. 1 John in 5, there? 7. They do. So 1 John 5, 7 says this, for there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. Um, And then if you look on the bottom, it says, late manuscripts of the Vulgate, which is the Latin translation of the Bible that was available in 1611, testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one, and there are three that testify on earth, Um, and then it says, not found in any Greek manuscript before the 14th century. Right, And so people who are writing the English Bible today say, okay, probably what happened is some scribe in the 14th, 15th century came on First John 5 and started geeking out and saying, like, that sounds like the Trinity. And I'm going to like, and there are three that testify in heaven. And they write the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and so now we have these older manuscripts. We're like, wait, somebody added that later. And so we say, that doesn't belong, and we change it. Um, and so that's one of those textual variants where, this came way later, fourteen centuries later, somebody added something and tried to slip it into the Bible, and then the Bible translators like eh, doesn't belong.
1: So, Let's take and, it out. and then what we're saying though, the follow-up to that, I'm sure some people are asking, like, so does that mean anything? You've said that, but does the Bible still teach us? Are we still like fighting in here? Do we have a doctrine of the Trinity even with the oldest yep. manuscripts? Do we have a divinity of Jesus in these early, in the earliest manuscripts of the Bible that we have today? I mean, I think that might be the question people are asking. No, right? and
2: then, then that's the beautiful thing is the answer is absolutely yes, right? So if you read, you know, if you all you had was the Bible we have in church every week and you read it, you would find out that Jesus claimed to be God. You'd find out that he rose from the dead. You'd find out about the Trinity. All of these things that were added centuries later and then realized those don't belong there, We're only reinforcing doctrines that the Bible has already asserted. Um, And so even if you read the King James-only kind of propaganda about they're trying to take the deity of Christ out of the Bible, you can't. Because from the earliest 30, 40, 50 years after Jesus ascended and the Bible was first written, they're already claiming the resurrection, claiming the incarnation, claiming the deity of Christ, claiming the Trinity, claiming all these things. And so all of those later editions um, are—we have— part of what we do as we create an English Bible is we can tell the story of how these things showed up. So if something shows up. My, my favorite textual, do you know my favorite textual variant?
1: Yes. Prayer and fasting. That's right.
2: My favorite textual varianting is the. there's one when Jesus casts out a demon, the disciples can't, and he goes to the disciples and says, this kind can only come out through prayer. And then it says on the bottom, some later manuscripts say, and fasting. And I had a uh, in the class that I took on this concept in seminary, my professor said, you can imagine there was some scribe in the 6th century or 8th century, whatever it was, who loved fasting, and he's writing it down. He's like, (laughs) this kind only comes out by prayer. And he's like, and fasting. (laughs) So every time I read that, I hear my professor saying, and fasting, which hey, prayer and fasting is great, but let's be honest, in the original manuscript, it just said prayer, but we learn about fasting in other places it. in the Bible, even though that one doesn't belong.
1: Well, that takes us to this kind of part. This this last question that we had online, we we can open it up uh, if we have time at the end. But we, I get this all the time. I'm sure, you guys do too. Just people asking, like, okay, we know most of us are not Greek scholars, can't read Koine Greek, can't read Hebrew, or the one chapter of Aramaic in Daniel. Like, what's the best English Bible? Ooh. How do I pick a good Bible? What's the right one? What's going to get me closest to the truth?
2: You already heard me say it's not the King James yeah. Version. Wow. Daniel says not the King wow. James. Wow. A lot of people try to fight about English Bible translations, and I think it's a little bit silly because every type of translation, at least the good ones, but every type of translation that, that we might talk about has its merits. And so so some people are all about literal translations. So there's a spectrum, right? Have you guys... Has anyone ever... Is anyone unfamiliar with English? There are a variety of English translations of the Bible, right? So this one right here, it says on here the New United. International Version. Um, and this is the New International Version from it's the
0: newest, in 2011?
2: 2011,
0: I believe. Mm-hmm.
2: 2011. In the seat rack in front of you, you might see a New International Version 2011. You might also look at the copyright page and realize it's a New International Version from 1984. And those are slightly different uh, because it was a full overhaul of the English, of translation of the Greek New Testament. In 2011 by the New International Version um, that commissioned it. We've got the English Standard Version. We've got the New International Bible, We've or New International Bible, New American, American Standard Bible. Verbal. We've got the uh, English uh, Living Bible. We've got the Holman Christian Standard Bible. We've got all of these different English translations. And all of these translations, besides the King James and the New King James, are English-speaking scholars, right? And we're just talking about English, right? We have the Nueva Versión Internacional, which is the NIV in Spanish. or English translators going to the same Greek manuscripts and saying, okay, how do I take what I'm seeing on Greek in this page and turn it into English? But the difficult thing about that is that language is not, what am I going to say, Nancy? Precise, and it's not math. A language is language, right? Which you learn if you ever learn a foreign language, right? If you want to, like, yeah. yes. So, uh, if you read, if you read a modern translation of like, uh, the Iliad or the Odyssey, some classical Greek literature, most likely it's like a, a paraphrase thought for thought kind of translation because what this author's trying to do is retain some of the beauty and the imagery of language and bring it over into English. But if you read Homer, this is a different topic, but if you read Homer, Homer will talk about how the, always talks about how the, the ocean is red or the sky is red. But if you read it in the English, a lot of times they'll say blue because they're like, no one's going to have any idea what he's talking about when he says this guy, right? Because it's, that's not what he means, right? He's talking. He's not trying to make a claim that there's blood in the sky. Maybe he was colorblind. We don't know. There's a whole, there's a whole conspiracy theory there. But um, they're trying to figure out how do you take this Greek text and turn it into the English language. But the problem is the English language is changing all the time, right? And so uh, in the 17th century, that's why you have a King James and a New King James, language changed. Uh, And also, as we're looking at the text, you have to make a decision, what's the best way to say this? And so there's a spectrum of like the more literal translations. So that's New American Standard, English Standard version of the Bible, very literal, like word for word. But what happens when you translate something from Greek to English word for word is it's up to you, the reader, to know what the words mean, right? And so uh, give me an example of that, AJ
0: to know what the words mean. Like what's an example of being uh, where like wooden
2: literal is you have to make a decision.
0: Mm, gird up your loins.
2: <laughs> yeah, okay. So yeah. <laughs> so yeah, first Peter, gird up your loins for action, right? English version probably says gird up your loins for action because literally it says in Greek gird, gird up, up your, your loins. loins for action. But if you go to the NIV uh, 2011, it says or 1984, it says prepare your minds for action because that's what it means. No one knows what gird up your loins <laughs> means, right? So you might say like, I don't like that. I want what the Bible authors really said. It's like, well, then say gird up your loins, right? But if you run it like the Amplified version, it's going to be something closer to gird up your loins. Amplified does even more than that, because what Amplified says is there are some things you can see in the Greek language that you don't see in the English language. So like in the Greek language, uh, word order is different. And so uh, in, in English, we just, you know, subject, predicate. In Greek, you put the words in order of <laughs> emphasis. And so the most important word is front, front. So if you read the Amplified Bible, a lot of times you'll know which word was the first word in the sentence because they'll, like, find a way to accentuate that word, right? Or if there's a, a verb tense, like the... Like uh, the perfect tense in Greek is a tense that kind of means once and it has implications into the future. In the amplified version, they'll find a way to draw out the implications that this is in the perfect tense. In the English Standard Version, it's just going to say the verb. It's not going to try to draw out anything. Um, And so it's the problem is the more you go this direction towards like amplified, right? So you've got English Standard, New American Standard Bible. New International international Version, New Living Translation, then you got like Amplified, then you got like The Message, right? The farther you go this way, the more readable it's going to be and the closer you might get to what the author intended because prepare your minds for action. But at the same time, over here, you have to make decisions of what gird up your loins means, which you're like, I don't even know what a loin is and that feels weird. Where over here... We right, if you're pork the tenderloin
1: message. tonight. Eugene, what'd you say? We had pork tenderloin for dinner tonight. But at the same time. Gird him up for so, action, so
2: gird, that
0: <laughs> gird
1: him up. Can gird it up in my heart, Can I say one thing Lord. in
0: favor of gird up your loins? The reason why you would like something like that is because it has a connection to Exodus. That phrase gets used as the disciple or the, 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 the Israelites are getting ready to you know, go out and they're preparing to go somewhere, right? Yep. So you retain a lot of these connections that you might lose if you go this way. So it's like a give and take. Well, that's the funny though.
2: So if I'm a preacher and I'm preaching this, uh, also gird up your loins, another great thing about gird up your loins, is this, 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 the reason they say that way, it's like they would wear these big old tunics and cloaks and all that. So if they wanted to run, you gotta like take up all these clothes and like gird up, you know, like go. (laughs) Uh, So it's a cool image. But the funny thing is, if I'm preaching the English Standard Bible and I say, gird up your loins from action, I'll say, okay, what you have to understand is, what it means is prepare your mind for action. But if I'm preaching the like New International Version, I'm like, and you have to understand, when it says prepare your mind for action, in the original Greek, it says gird up your loins. You'll see that in the English Standard Version. And what that means is, right, so you have to do the same amount of work. Um, but the reason the reason we've chosen the New International Version for your book, racks, primarily is based on reading level, right? So because part of it is... Over here, we're looking at college or 11th grade reading level for the ESV. NIV is a 7th grade reading level. The TNIV is a 4th grade reading level. And so back in, in the 80s when we moved from King James to a new Bible, we had to choose between the New American Standard Bible or the New Living Translation. This might have been in the 70s. And Pastor Jake was like, "No one. I want people coming to our church to read the Bible. No one can understand the New International Verb." No, ASV. The, AS, oh, the ASV. ASV. Is that what it was? Uh, yeah. Like, these, the folks who were coming to our church in the 1970s weren't scholars. We need to give them something they can read. So let's give them the TNIV or whatever it was, the New Living Translation. Yeah, and so when we kind of refreshed that, when the 2011 version of the NIV came out uh, in 2011, we had to say, okay, we got to do something. Do we want to switch to the ESV or stick with the NIV? Uh, when we talked about it, we just said, you know what? Like, we want the people who are coming to Christ in our church to be able to read the Bible. I don't know if a lot of them are reading at a college or eleventh grade reading level. Let's make sure first of all that whatever we put in their hands they can read, and this is a quality translation, and it's right down the middle, right? Yeah. And so,
1: okay. So, people are still asking, what do you want? What do you want to read? What do you read? Which one? Which when what I, read, do you I read, I
2: mostly read the New International Version. Yeah. I think the, I think I read when I read the English Standard Version of the Bible. It's when I'm mostly on my app when I'm trying to pull up Greek terms a lot. Yep. Um, and so uh, so when I'm trying to get super technical and geek out, I read the English Standard. Day-to-day, I'm reading the New International Version. When I want to just like enjoy the Bible and kind of like read it like it's a novel, I pick up Eugene Peterson's The Message, yep. which I feel like he does a great job um, with that. Hey, Some Dylan. people hate The Message.
0: What about you? NASB.
1: NASB. Is
0: that it? <laughs> right or die? I mean, I just love the scriptures and how they can allude to each other. Yeah, And I feel like I don't want to miss that. I guess that's the season of life I'm in. Mm -hmm. And what I mean, what the digital age has done tremendously is made it possible so that you can read one passage in six different ways at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of good resources. I'd encourage you guys to check out the Net Bible, I think, is online. Oh, Dal- are
2: you talking about the Dallas Seminary Bible?
0: Uh yeah. <laughs> Because you can you can pull up those different like translate translations and you yeah. put them side to side yes. and see like how are these people translating. So. And I think part for you for y'all, like
1: when you're thinking about what what Bible you're gonna read and what translation you're gonna pick. Really, like, we would make that, re- don't feel pressured, like, oh, gosh, you know, I got to prove that I can read at 11th grade level, so I better pick the ESV or Pastor AJ. Pick those ones, like, God's going God, to God's gonna use his word, illuminate his word for you. The, the Holy Spirit's going to work through you. And find that one that, like, inspires that love of God. I, I kind of have something similar with Danny, where a lot of times, like, my actually, my standard kind of reading Bible is the ESV. But lately, I've been I do I've been re- listening to the NIV. I did that for a year. listen to the Bible. Listen to it. Like a po- I had a podcast every day. There's something really powerful about hearing the Bible, hearing the scriptures. Faith it's, comes re- by hearing. You know, it comes by hearing. And uh, the last year, I was reading uh, the Message, and it just was. It's so different than an ESV, but it really like made me look at things and be like, wow, I, I guess I never thought about that passage quite in that way. Um, and so just find those things like God's going to speak to you through his word and there's never going to be a downside to spending time in the scriptures. So all these things. Yeah.
0: Can I close it with Please one more close com- it. quick comment? You take this conversation about trying to get to the original meaning of the text yeah. and you multiply it times the entire conversation we have. I think that's why you get variance. Yes is that all these yes. scribes are trying their very best, and the tweaks that they do make, mm. this is the reason why. Yeah. It's because they're trying their very best to communicate something. And uh, you know, you look at the Septuagint, Vulgate, King James Version, all of them have uniquenesses. And yeah, that's the task of biblical scholarship, is yeah. how do I take this text and how do I be faithful to what it means?